Um, all right, thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that very much. Uh, thanks again to uh, Charles for preaching for me last week from Mark chapter 9. This morning we're going to continue that series in the book of Mark, and so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 13. It's a very familiar passage to many of you, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus when he takes uh, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and is transfigured in, uh, before them. So <clears throat> turn to Mark chapter 9 and we'll read verses 1 through 13 together. As you're turning there, let me just remind you of the context of this passage. Jesus had been ministering all around Galilee and the Sea of Galilee and uh, in and out of the Jerusalem and, and Israel uh, in its primary location. He had been all around that area. And at some points, he began to take his disciples on these trips just across Israeli borders. He went into Tyre and Sidon. He was taking his disciples away. Remember, the disciples could have been as many as 120 people, uh, a large number of followers, and he designated 12 of those as apostles. And so when it says his disciples, he was traveling with a fairly large group of people. Have you ever tried to keep track of uh, 10 or 15 people on a field trip? Right? Think about 120 uh, traveling. This is a large group. They're traveling around. Jesus has taken them to way far north uh, to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It used to be a part of Israel, uh, but now was in occupied territory. It hosted a place called uh, the Temple of Pan. It used to be a Baal worship site, and it was a large cave. And at the uh, at the end of the cave, there was a uh, what Josephus writes was a bottomless pit. They had tried to sound it out with uh, rope, and no rope could ever hit the bottom. Uh, and it became a place of worship. It was known as the Gates of Hades, right? In Greek mythology, it was this place where the dead go and are held there. And so this cave became known as that. And so there were all kinds of pagan temples all around this area, and they would throw sacrifices into this bottomless cave, and there were all these theories. So Jesus has taken his disciples, all of them, right into this area. And this is the, the famous part where we get him saying that the, the, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the, the Hades will not overcome the, my building of the church. All these things are happening in this sort of foreign trip that Jesus has taken his disciples on. He also told his disciples for the first time, just along this trip, uh, he asked them, who do you say I am, right? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Peter, Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church, this foundation of faith. Uh, he says, uh, what is a true disciple? Is someone who has um, uh, follows me, who has repented and they're following me now. Is they're, they're denying themselves, taking up their cross and following me. And this is the first time Jesus has mentioned the cross to his disciples. And then he said, really clearly, that he must go to a cross and die. And Peter, what does he say? No, you're not going to die. You don't have to go to a cross. 
And so Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about my mission. You're thinking about your own desires. So all this has just taken place, and the disciples are likely confused. They're not quite sure what's happening. Jesus is talking about dying, and they're at the height of his popularity. Massive crowds are following him from everywhere. And so all of these things, this is a pivot in Jesus' ministry toward suffering and toward Jerusalem. Up to this point, he hasn't suffered. Right? Up to this point, he, uh, he's, he's just enjoyed popularity. He's, he's had some skirmishes with religious officials and things like that. But now he's entering into the last nine months to maybe um, 18, uh, nine months to maybe uh, 15 months of his ministry. The last uh, nine months to a year and a half of his, of his life uh, in his ministry is coming down. And he's telling his disciples it's going to happen two more times. He's going to predict his death. And so here in chapter 9, he's just done that, and now he is, uh, he's going on this um, extra trip up Mount Hermon. So let's read that together in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well, this is God's word for us this morning, and it's my hope uh, that the Lord speaks to you through his passage, that, uh, that by the power of his Holy Spirit, that you may have discernment this morning, that you may test everything that you hear uh, in this message, and that God's uh, Spirit may give you insight into his word and may speak to you personally. Uh, we're going to go back through these verses and try to get a better understanding. Um, you may have had a mountaintop experience, or you may have heard the phrase mountaintop experience. Have you ever heard that phrase used? Uh, typically, people, after they come through a, um, a, a period of time in their life where they feel significantly closer to God, um, maybe it was in a, sort of a period of um, maybe a youth retreat or an adult conference or some kind of a retreat where, where it's most often attributed to a time in your life when you have been 
saturated uh, by worship and by the word of God. And for a long period of time, you have uh, maybe a set of uh, circumstances are all blocked out and you have a lot of time for you to focus on worship and the word and you're hearing the word and you're in the fellowship of Christians. Most oftentimes this contributes to what we understand as kind of a mountaintop experience or, or maybe a period of months or for some maybe even years where where trials of life are sort of um, held at bay and you have a unique period of your time when you're really focused on God and you're really walking with the Lord and there's significant victory from sin in your life. And, and it may be during that time that you experience the presence of God in a way that you hadn't experienced before and it's new and it's fresh. And does anybody understand this? Does this ring true to you and your Christian experience as well? That there have been periods of your life when you're closer to God. They usually come on the back end of trials, right? Through a trial when, when the fire is heated up in your life and you are all of a sudden forced into a place where you have to trust God more and you're seeking Him more and you're in His Word more. It very rarely comes on the back end of really great, prosperous times. It almost always comes on the back end of difficult times. And during that time, you're accustomed to seeking God um, in a more serious way if you choose to follow him in faith. Oftentimes those circumstances can bring you to a place when you don't persist in faith, but you actually shrink back in doubt and you walk away from the Lord for a period of time. That, that wouldn't be a mountaintop experience, but, but for those who persist in faith, there is within that time this um, deeper sense of intimacy with God. I can remember going through a time like this several years ago, and it was during this time that I was so needy for the Lord, so desperate because of personal trials, that I began to uh, make a, a commitment, a dedication. I heard recently motivation is a feeling, but dedication is, um, a, is a, a commitment to do something regardless of feelings. And so I dedicated myself to read 10 to 12 chapters of Scripture a day, uh, and during that time of just intense saturation and intense prayer, I began to long for the presence of God. My, my devotional times went from 15 minutes a day to sort of habit into an hour or more a day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, and it was during this time at a, a, a field trip, a conference trip in, in Dallas, where I first experienced waking up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning with just a real um, sense of the nearness of God, and I had to get up and worship, and I had to get up and pray, and I had to get up and sing, and, and it was it was during this time uh, that I would kind of attribute this to a mountaintop experience. The presence of God was just so closely felt, and it just sustained me for years. Uh, those times. This is what we get when we talk about a mountaintop experience. Um, Peter and James and John had such an experience here. They were up on the mountain. They experienced the presence of God in a unique way. It reminds us of Exodus 32 and Exodus 33 and 34 when Moses would go and spend time in the presence of God and he would experience God's nearness in a, in a new and fresh way. But just like all mountaintop experiences, eventually we come down, right? It's just a matter of verses in the scripture here, when they come down and there's a squabble between people, there's a fight and Jesus has to enter into a discussion, he has to mediate between a fight between the other disciples, and, and so oftentimes in our experience, 
The mountaintop experience is over too soon. Can you agree with that? Can you relate to that? You want to dwell there like Peter, right? He's like, can we just build a tent here and just, can't this be reality forever? But it seems just so far out of reach. One of my kids in the day, Grayson, used to play this game called Just Out of Reach, and he was younger, and we would put a little foam ball on the floor, and it was my goal, I mean, he would get on all fours, and I would grab his ankle, and it was my goal to get him as close to that ball as possible without letting him touch it, right? And so he would reach out, and as soon as he would reach to grab it, I would yank his ankle back, and we would just play this for hours and giggle because he could. He would always try to get it, and just as soon as the ball was within an inch or so of his grasp, I would pull it so that the ball was always out of reach. And occasionally he would grab it. I can't do this for him anymore. He's way too big, and he would destroy me in this game. But, but if he could grab it, he would win, and, and if he couldn't, he was always just sort of out of reach. And... And that game has reminded me so many times of these mountaintop experiences. Well, you wish that God's presence, that you could dwell in it for a long time. And yet, it just as soon as you experience His nearness here on earth, oftentimes it fades away. Well, this passage demonstrates this amazing event that would last for Peter, James, and John for a long time. John lives for another 60 or more years until he records the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. Peter would live for another 30 or 40 years until he writes his epistles and, um, and church history records for us that he was crucified upside down in, uh, in Rome. Uh, James would die in just another 15 or so years, but this is one experience for them that is incredibly meaningful, and it does something for us. This passage has a main point for us, and so if you're taking notes, uh, let me just give you the main point of this passage so that you can write this down, and the main point is that you can have confidence that Jesus is God incarnate. This passage is meant to give you confidence that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God Incarnate is just a word that just means he became a man. Jesus is God who became a man. Jesus is revealed to us as the Son of the Father in the Trinity. He became a human. That's our, it's all incarnation means. Now, you know there are other passages that demonstrate this. It's not just this passage, right? The virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus um, was not born in the regular way. He was uh, born as the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and, and a, a child uh, is conceived in that way. Uh, you see the Holy Spirit descending at Jesus' baptism. That's another way that confirms the incarnation. The voice is heard from heaven from a lot of witnesses. This is my son, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And of course, the resurrection is, the, is the, another way that we see that Jesus is God incarnate. But I want you to see here that this lends credibility in a unique way so that you can have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God who took on humanity. And you might even say, why does this matter? This is just sort of doctrinal, heady stuff. What does this even matter? It matters because from time to time you'll have someone knock on your door and they uh, maybe from a different um, religion or from a different um, persuasion and they would say something like this, that Jesus is an angel. He's just an angel. He's a created being that God created and used for a particular time. Or you might have someone who um, maybe in a, a group will say uh, at a party or something like that that Jesus was a good teacher uh, and he was a significant person um, and he taught a lot of things, but uh, most of his 
miracles and most of his teachings are sort of mythologized. They're not real. Or you might hear that Jesus is not merely uh, a man who then then became a god later, but that he was born as a regular man and then became a god. That's a different cultic idea. Or you might hear that Jesus became God at the cross as though he sort of hijacked some poor guy's body and died in sort of a symbolic or, or other way. Or that Jesus became God at his baptism. All of these are cultic ideas. Even the Gnostic idea that Jesus was a spirit, as sort of like a ghost, and had no real physical body. All of these ideas circulate, and you hear these, and so it's important for you to understand that Jesus was God incarnate. It's called the hypostatic union, right? This is the union where God became a person. He was he he took on an additional nature and they were together without mixing. He was fully God and fully man. And it's important for you to understand that. Hebrews 1 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So let's take a look back at the passage, some key passages here in the verse. Let's understand this, and I want to help give you some confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is who he says he is, your eternity hangs on what you think about that. All of the forgiveness of all of your sins, any hope for heaven, any hope that any loved one who has passed on is in heaven. It also means that judgment is true and that without Jesus, there is punishment for sins. It all hinges on the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And so if you don't have that confidence, then everything hinges on this issue. So let's look back at our text together. Look back at verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is, uh, then six days later, Jesus takes him up on the mountain. There's a six-day gap in there. We don't know what happens during that six days. But Jesus is telling the group of disciples, after he clarifies what is a disciple, after all that takes place, he tells the group of them, some people who are right here won't die until they taste this. So this, what does this mean? Well, it's been uh, interpreted in a few different ways. One interpretation is that it would happen in six days. Three disciples go up on the mountain. They see the kingdom of God come in power, right? Jesus is transformed. His glory is revealed. They see him as he truly was before eternity, uh, before he stepped into, uh, into humanity. That's one interpretation, is the transfiguration is the fulfillment of verse 1. Another interpretation is that it happened at his resurrection. All of these disciples, they didn't die uh, until they saw his resurrection. They saw the kingdom of God come in power. Another interpretation is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, right? Forty days uh, after Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes with power and he fills all the disciples. That's another interpretation. The most unlikely explanation of this is that somewhere on the earth there are these disciples living in a cave or living in hiding somewhere and they're waiting for Jesus to come a second time. It's most likely the transfiguration that is happening. Jesus is going to say there are a few people here that won't die before they see, have a taste of the glory of the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, 
Look at verse 2. Jesus, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. There's no record of what happened during those six days. Uh, they could have um, been a time of rest. It could have been a time of teaching. But a period of time comes, and then after six days, Jesus looks and says, Peter, James, John, we're going to go up on this high mountain. Mount Hermon is one of the highest mountains in the region. And so he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now these are known as his inner circle, the three who are closest to Jesus. They uh, they keep um, these are the three witnesses who will give bold testimony that Jesus is in fact God. Uh, Peter was probably around 20 years old. He was married. None of the other disciples are uh, said to have had a, a wife at this time. Um, 18 was the common age for marriage. Uh, Peter, you remember, Matthew goes, um, and his mother-in-law is sick, and so he asked Jesus to come heal his mother-in-law. And you can't be, you can't have a mother-in-law unless you're, unless you're married, right? So Peter's, Peter's probably married, probably one of the only apostles who are married. It's hard to imagine the apostles as a bunch of 16-year-olds, right? Especially if you have a 16-year-old. Um, but, but they're likely a bunch of teenagers. Um, and Jesus chooses these three teenagers. Maybe Peter's a little older than the three others, but he chooses them. Um, John had been a follower of John the Baptist, so he'd been following Jesus for a long time, and he comes along, and then James was his brother. They're also called the Sons of Thunder. Uh, they wanted to call down fire from heaven on any village that didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, their mother was the one who said, uh, maybe my sons sit on your left and your right in heaven. And uh, so these are interesting characters. Jesus chooses the three of them and he brings them up on top of Mount Hermon. And at this point, he was transfigured. Mark kind of mentions this casually. It's just a few words. He was transfigured. But Luke 9 helps us understand dazzling white clothing uh, is also mentioned in this passage. And, and it literally means it's as bright as a flash of lightning. Have you ever seen lightning strike and you try to see it? It's blinding. Jesus' clothes and his body radiates this lightning flash. And this gives a glimpse into the future glory of Christ. And it reminds us of Exodus 34, when Moses is up on the mountain. He wants to see God's glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. It's too, it's too much for you. No one can see my face. So he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And, and all during that episode, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, we receiving the word of God. He is in the presence of God, and his face is so... He is radiating the face of God, the glory of God. He comes down and they, they say he's, he's too bright. And so they make him put a veil over his face because he's so in the presence of God that God's glory shines through him. This is different. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He is radiating the glory of God. And the passage is careful to show that. Along this um, same idea. In verse 4, we see that uh, Jesus um, has with him Elijah and Moses, and they're talking with him. I started to think, as I studied this passage, who else could have been included in that group? Who else would have come? Any other famous figures from the Old Testament? Maybe Abraham, or maybe uh, Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, and all of these sort of Christ figures from the Old Testament. But that's not the purpose of Elijah and Moses being with him. 
The purpose of Elijah and Moses being with him is that there is gathering a witness. There is gathering a witness uh, from all the people, uh, from all the remnant of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, they would refer to the scriptures as uh, the law and the prophets. And Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. And so by Moses and Elijah being there, they are witnessing that all of the law and all of the prophets testify of who Jesus is. There are also these other three witnesses, Peter, James, and John. So Elijah and Moses give affirmation that Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. Now I want you to notice something missing in this text. There is one key word that flows from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 16. What's one random key word that Mark loves? It's the word immediately, right? Everything happens immediately. I mean, if you just read the first chapter, it's immediately and something else happens immediately and something else happens immediately. But look what's missing in this image of the transfiguration. Verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter goes through his phrase, see, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then this cloud overshadows them, and the voice of God comes. But there is no use of the word immediately. Luke records for us that Elijah and Moses and Jesus are having a conversation about what must soon take place. And there's a conversation. This helps us, gives us insight in the fact that this is happening for a while. Peter, James, and John are, uh, are awestruck, are likely blinded by Jesus, and are, uh, are captivated by this. But don't get the impression that this is a split-second event. Mark loves the word immediately, and the word immediately is not used anywhere in this section. This is a lingering event. It's lingering long enough for Jesus to have a meaningful conversation. Have you ever had one of those conversations on the phone when someone calls you and you're right in the middle of a task, and it just you sort of, uh-huh, you're short with your answers, and you're trying to get off the phone as quickly as you can, and you recognize the other person trying to get off the phone as quickly as they can, and, and you sort of feel that cue. Jesus is having a conversation with Elijah and with Moses, and it doesn't, there's no sense in the text that it's happening rapidly. The only thing that happens suddenly is in verse 8, after the episode is over, there is no longer anyone with them but Jesus only. Before we move too far out of that, um, I want to just say this interesting part about Peter. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. Three tabernacles is the same word. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying, for they were terrified. Uh, There are many interpretations about what this passage means, right? He used the word tabernacle. There was a feast of tabernacles. It harkened back to the Old Testament when there was a tabernacle that housed the presence of God. And so some people would think that Peter was saying, this is a holy time. This is a holy place. Let's set up a worship system, a tabernacle, right here on this mountain so that this can be a lingering place of worship, so that we can have a a place where the presence of God is contained so that we can always visit it. I don't think that's true. Um, 
most of the Gospels are clear to say that Peter is out of his, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. Um, I had a friend who always says this about themselves, that they often enter a room mouth first and leave the room wishing they had said less. Right? Can you identify with that? Or you, you walk in and you just start talking and, and words are coming out of your mouth and you can't stop them. They're just, you say the wrong things and you make the wrong inferences and, and, and you always leave the room saying, I wish I had just not said that. Or, or maybe you, you guessed if, uh, if something wrong and maybe you're saying things. This is the impression that we get about Peter is that he's, he's just talking. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know why he's saying it. He's just talking. And that's, that's what we get. Mark is probably writing from Peter's eyewitness testimony. And so when Mark says he's out of his mind, it's probably Peter saying over his shoulder, hey, I don't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was saying. I was just kind of scared. And this is what came out of my mouth. Verse 7, the cloud overshadows them. This is almost identical to what happens in Mount Sinai, a voice coming out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This voice echoing out of the clouds uh, comes often. We hear Jesus' baptism. We hear uh, a voice coming out of a cloud in Exodus 33. A lot of parallels to Exodus 33. Then in verses 8, 9, and through the rest of this section, through verses 13, the disciples, they have some questions about this event naturally. Right? Naturally, they're concerned and have questions. They want to know, um, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until after I rise from the dead. They don't understand what it means for him to rise from the dead. He's already, this is the second kind of time he's hinted that he's going to die and rise from the dead. Um, this transformation event leaves them with questions. There was Elijah. Why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? We learn from a different passage that uh, Jesus considers John the Baptist to be Elijah, who prepares the way for him. And so Elijah, Jesus affirms, does come first. He prepares the way, voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist fulfills that Elijah role. He's not Elijah reincarnated or anything like that. He comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah and prepares the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist is, is killed. Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as was written about them. What can we do with this passage? What does this mean to you today? Let me just conclude with a couple of thoughts. Why should you care about this today? How can this 13-verse section change the way you think? What do these 13 verses help you to live a more holy life, to, to get rid of sin in your life, or to live on mission, or to give you hope, maybe in spite of circumstances around you that you may not have hope. What can you do to deepen your faith? Let me give you a couple of applications. Number one is that Moses and Elijah died. They literally died. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. He went up on a mountain, and, uh, and he died there. Um, Elijah died, but here they are, alive and well, and in the presence of God. And, and, and so one thing I want to I want to help you see is that this may sound obvious, but there is real life, and there is real purpose after death. 
his real life and real purpose after death. You might need to change your view of heaven and eternity. As real as life feels to you right now, as real as your pulse is, as real as your breath is, as real as your heartbeat is, as real as the thoughts that are going through your mind right now, eternity and the afterlife is real. You will have a real existence after death. And it's a real existence with a real purpose. It's not just words and clouds and singing in some sort of uh, weird way. Jesus promises a coming kingdom and a coming government with responsibilities and positions of authority. He says that the one who is faithful in small things will be given authority to govern other things, greater things. We will have a role in the kingdom of God as priests and to help in the rule of Jesus' millennial kingdom. Right? I don't want to freak anybody out by talking about premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism. A lot of that is just sort of way over, to be honest, most of our heads, we don't understand the way we approach eschatology and the end times. So even if you're not sure what you believe, just understand that 98% of the other people in the room probably aren't sure what they understand and believe about this as well, unless they heard something. But just to kind of open your mind a little bit to understand that heaven is more than what you have in mind, if you have in mind sort of some eternal worship service of just swaying in a crowd in some cloud or playing harps while you're wearing a robe. It's more than that. Just listen to Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on the thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Paul talks about this in Corinthians, that we will judge people. We will have a future judging role in the end times. He says, I also saw in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, also I saw the souls of those who had been murdered for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Don't skip the reigning part because of the beast and the mark and all those things. I know I know this is it's apocalyptic prophetic literature, and so it has a genre all its own with a lot of symbols and images. But the idea of Jesus reigning and us coming to life to reign is supported in a lot of other passages. Think about Thessalonians, right? Paul is talking about, you'll hear the trump and the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first to meet him in the air. The rest of us who are alive will be caught up with him so as to reign with Christ. Verse 5 of Revelation 20 says, The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So it's hinting that believers will be resurrected to reign with Christ in a millennial kingdom. And verse 6 of chapter 20 of Revelation says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now listen, even if you don't understand premillennialism or amillennialism or postmillennialism, that doesn't matter. Scholars have those points of view 
you don't have to nail that down to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, all right? Anybody who's an expert in end times thinks highly of themselves because this sort of literature can't be nailed down until after, right? Once you see it fulfilled, then it all makes sense. But the point is, even if you don't understand and agree with the premillennial view, you should accept the plan. You should accept the thing that God has a plan for your life. Moses and Elijah were dead, and here they are in the presence of God, fulfilling the purpose to encourage Jesus in, in, in his mission. That speaks to God has a purpose for you for eternity. There is directly tied to how you live your life now. Jesus told the parable that a, um, a, a business owner went away on business and he, he left gifts and he left talents to people and he charged them to do well with those things. And over the ones who did well and managed and were good stewards and were faithful servants, he said, over a little you have been faithful, I will give you much to govern. In one parable, he says, I will give you rule over 20 cities and another 12 cities. There is a real rule and a real place that God has for you in eternity. It's not symbolic. And it's not without purpose. And it's not just sort of heavenly fairways and 70 degree weather and, you know, sitting under a palm tree you know, drinking drinks out of a coconut. I mean, wouldn't be a great paradise is like that, but it's, not, it's all these crazy ideas. There's a real plan for you in eternity, and it's based on how you live your life today. The sin you crucify, the fleshly ways in which you live, to the, to the degree that you put those to death and live on mission, living for kingdom purposes, has a real correlation to your eternal um, purposes. You think about this, if your life is the distance between my thumb and my finger, this is the span of your life, right? the dash between the dates, you're going to be born on this date and you're going to die on this date, and that sort of dash represents what you do with this life. And that span will affect your eternity. And so if my between my thumb and that wall is just the beginning of eternity. Your eternity is way longer than your life. I know that sounds so obvious, but, but this matters. Your life matters, and it matters more than a paycheck. It matters more than uh, a career. It matters more than hobbies. What you do now has eternal consequences. There's a real plan for you, and that gives us hope. It gives us hope because as Paul wrote to the Romans, death is your sting. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid that if, if our life, if you walk out of this place and, and this was the last week of your life, you don't have to have any fear based on the way you have lived your life for Jesus. That you haven't wasted it. If you have an intimate relationship with the author of life, why should you fear death? It has no sting. Jesus has defeated death. A second application point is that you can have confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Therefore, his death on the cross fully satisfied God's wrath. 
I started this sermon with the statement that Jesus was God incarnate, and that you can be confident in that. But why? Why can you be confident of that? You can be confident of that because the power of an eyewitness testimony. Um, just before the sermon, Seth read from Second Peter chapter one, and the very next section that he didn't read in verses sixteen through eighteen of Second Peter one. Peter is referring back to this event. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, right? You think Santa Claus, and I don't want to burst any bells, but you think Santa Claus might be like a cleverly devised myth that if you're good enough, Santa's going to be good to you. And if you're not, you might think, We didn't follow these cleverly devised myths, Peter is saying, when we made known to you the coming of Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about, eyewitnesses of his majesty? This could be 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. Verse 17 of 2 Peter 1, When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him where? On the holy mountain. You think this made an impression on Peter? Forty years later in Rome, he's writing to believers saying, this was real. And it was so real that Peter, James, and John all died painful martyr deaths defending this. Chuck Colson in his book describes the fall of Nixon at Watergate and the people who were put together in the highest places of government to defend a lie, and it only took a little while for that group of people to, under intense scrutiny and pressure, to all, one by one, give up the lie. Because people won't protect a lie when their life and their livelihood are on the line. Peter, James, and John, all three died testifying under painful experiences that Jesus was who he said he was. James was murdered by Herod in Acts chapter 12, just within a 15-year period, maybe 20-year period, after Jesus' resurrection. Peter, according to church history, was murdered in Rome um, under the reign of Nero around 68 AD, giving him 40 years of ministry. He walked with Jesus during this period, and crucified, asked, asked to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same way Jesus died. All of you would say Jesus was not God. And they would have let him go. John, the longest living of all the apostles, wrote Revelation around 90, which is almost 60 years after Jesus started his ministry. And he died in this prison testifying that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus healed disease. Jesus forgave sin. Jesus expressed authority over creation. And he was crucified primarily for blasphemy. What does that mean? He claimed to be God. And if he wasn't sinless, then his death had no power to satisfy God's wrath. But Jesus said he was, and his death had power to satisfy God's wrath. What does that mean for you? That means that he took your punishment and that you don't have to suffer punishment. You, don't, you can be forgiven. All of your sins from the east to the west can be completely wiped out. 
You don't have to suffer for your sins. He doesn't punish you for your sins. He doesn't punish you now, and he won't punish you in eternity because Jesus bore the penalty for your sins. That's good news. If you're a sinner, if you don't think you're a sinner, then you're likely not very excited about that news. But for those of us who know how wicked and how depraved we are, the fact that Jesus bore our sins is the greatest news you could ever hear. The final thing I'll close with this is that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He made promises to you. He made promises throughout eternity. In Genesis 3, he promised to send one in the form of man who would crush the serpent's head. In Deuteronomy 15, he said, One like Moses, a prophet like me, will come, and you shall listen to him. He shall bring atonement. In Isaiah, he talked about the suffering servant. In Ezekiel, in, in Micah, in all these places, he made promises to redeem a people for himself. And if he is a promise-making and promise-keeping God, then you can trust him today. You can trust him to keep his promises. He promised a Messiah. He promised redemption. He promised salvation. He promised forgiveness. He promised to give you a new life and a new start. He promised to cancel all of your old sins and mistakes, and he nailed them to the cross. He promised to give you the Holy Spirit, the Counselor. He promised to give you power over sin and temptation. You don't have to give into it any longer. He promised that nothing could snatch you out of his hands. He promised to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. He promised to graft into all the promises of Israel a Gentile suit and to give you all those promises. He promised to preserve his own until the end, saying that no one can snatch you from his hands. There is nothing, if you are in Christ, that can remove you from that position of security. He promises to return. He promises to resurrect his own. He promises that if your name is written in the book of life, that you shall not be cast into the second death, the lake of fire. He promises to judge the living and the dead according to one decision, what you do with a glorified Jesus. He's a promise-making God. And if he kept his promises in the past, you can trust him to keep his promises in the future. And that should give you hope. And that should deepen your faith. And that should change the way you live today. So Father, we thank you for the purpose of your word today. We thank you for the way in which you use it. We thank you for the promises in it. We thank you for the hope that it inspires and the faith that is deepened as a result of it. In whatever way you desire, I pray that you would take your word and use it today for your glory and for your majesty. I thank you for those whom you have called to be here to listen to it. And I thank you that the responsibility is now on them. Thank you that you have clearly shown them what it is you would have them to do from this passage. I pray that they would follow through in obedience and commitment and that you would grow up with them in hope 
to well up within them faith, to well up within them a desire to live in such a way as they will be seen as good stewards, as those who have been faithful with a little, who in eternity will be given responsibility over much. We thank you for your promises. We pray that we would fix our eyes on heaven. We would set our minds things above and not be, not be so caught off and confused and distracted by things of this world. We pray in Jesus' name that we would fix our eyes above, focus our hearts, live our lives for you. Because this, this world is not our home. We are citizens of another kingdom. We pray that we would live with that citizenship in mind. We ask you in Jesus' name. Can you stay with us for this last song?